Welcome to Game On, the weekly football podcast bringing together seasoned professionals, the male star football writers and a celebrity fan or two. I'm your host, Mark Pugach. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Game On on video. Hello, I'm Mark Pugach. Welcome to Game On, the weekly football chat from Mail Plus. So Chelsea through in Europe, Manchester City through, Manchester United through, but Arsenal beaten by their former manager in their Europa League semi-final. What now for Mikel Arteta? With us today to discuss all this, Nigel Winterburn, who played for Arsenal with great distinction over many years, Clive Tildesley, ITV's lead football commentator for 22 years, and Martin Samuel, the Daily Mail's chief sports writer. Hello, everybody. I hope you're well. Clive, Nigel, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Martin, good to see you as ever. Nigel, we know where we're going to start. And my question is this. Does it really matter who the manager of Arsenal is if the owner won't invest in the team? Well, I'm not up to date, if I'm completely honest with you. And the other guys may have more information on... I think what you would need to do is to look at spending with the current owner over the last few seasons and then spending in the past as well to to get a real objective of where we are. I think as a as a club, ex-players and supporters know where we are. We have fallen from grace very rapidly and we are in a difficult position and a much more difficult position than I think a lot of people realise. So um, for me at the moment... I'm not sure a change of manager would make a huge difference. I think the club personally need an internal review right from the very, very top down through with the manager um, to the current squad to see how somehow they are going to rectify um, the position of Arsenal Football Club. And, you know, a lot of the ex-players are very, very passionate about their club. Obviously, the supporters are. There is a big, big worry that this is just going to continue. Um, And there's certain voices now coming out saying we need to somehow find out how we're going to rectify the situation because I think really it seems to me as if it's all gone wrong since we moved to the Emirates, if (laughs) if I'm completely honest with you. And the statement of the club was... You know, we're moving to, we have to move to the Emirates to compete with the big teams. And actually what's happened is we've gone backwards and we've gone backwards a long, long way. Uh, and that's, for me, it's quite upsetting and very, very disappointing. Clive, you, you commentated on many a Champions League night at Highbury and the Emirates. What, what do you think now when you look at Arsenal mid-table? They're not going to be in Europe next season unless something miraculous happens in the last few league games. Uh, what do you think when you look at Mikel Arteta and the job he's doing? I think from the outside looking in, um, Arsenal have got a lot of senior players. Um, and some of them are young players of, of genuine promise. Um, I think you've got to ask yourself whether those players... I think probably the worst thing anybody can do when a manager's under pressure is sound out the dressing room. But because there are some young voices in that dressing room, if you can detect that they're still on board with this man, then I think they are the future. Um, and I think you stay with him. But I think you've got to have a... If, if you are going to get rid of your manager, 
I think you've got to have a clear idea where you're going next. I know that's unethical and it's probably illegal. Um, and, you know, just from the point of view of diversity, it's good to have a proper interview uh, process. But this is um, football's a, a headhunting business sector. I remember, you know, Roy Hodgson once said to me that as an England manager, you've got to know what your best 11 is every single day. It will change, but you've got to almost be ready for somebody surprising you with, hey, you're in the World Cup final tomorrow. Who are you going to play? And I think actually as a football owner, if you're starting to get worried about the direction your manager is heading, and I think Arsenal are entitled to be worried after 18 months and 80-odd games, and you're still not quite sure what your best team is. But I think you have to have in mind the alternative. I think this vacuum, with the greatest respect to Ryan Mason, this vacuum at Tottenham is, is not helpful. And I don't think you want to finish up with a situation where Steve Brown's in charge for three months, you know, while you, you look around and try to sound out Max Allegri or whoever. I think actually the owner of a 21st century football club has got to, has got to know where they're going to go next if they're going to get rid of the manager. But Martin, is that part of the problem? Because the owner, of course, is in America. We don't know really how interested he is. So there is nobody on the ground with the authority. There are people on the ground, but do they have the authority to do the sounding out if that's what they want to do? Well, Arsenal have had everybody on the ground the last night. I've, I've lost track of the amount of directors of football and recruitment, and this one's in charge of that, and this one's in charge of this. And um, that could be because th there's an absentee owner, uh, so he needs all of these different executives. Um, but there's no direction. There's no direction in the club. Yet last night, um, a guy that Arsenal rejected completely and utterly... Um, outwitted, for want of a better phrase, the guy that they replaced him with. Well, so the recruitment process, you know, wasn't right. Whatever, Emery looked as if he had far more idea of how to set up a team to win a football match, or certainly to progress uh, in a in a semi-final than, than Mikel Arteta did. And I'm a Mikel Arteta fan, but nonetheless, you do look at Emery's tenure there, and when you see the man last night, and he's got Villarreal to their first um, European final, and it is a tiny club. It's 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 Leicester, and then a little bit, you know, less than Leicester, really. At Leicester, Atalanta. It's in that bracket. It's in the bracket that Arsenal and five other clubs in our country wanted to exclude from from the the, the best prizes in European football. So no sympathy there, by the way. But um, you know, you look at Emery, and you think. Well, should they have supported him a bit more? Should should you know when when he left, um, and he left with a bit of a, a moan about certain things, and it wasn't that impressive. But one of his complaints was, I asked for X, Y, and Z, and I got B, C, and D. Well, you know maybe they should have trusted their manager a little bit more to to tell them what they needed to to progress because they haven't progressed. They haven't progressed since Emery left. And they haven't really progressed since Arsenal. Clive, what about Manchester United? They'll be favourites to beat mm. Villarreal in the final. And watching them as you have this season, how far away are they from narrowing the gap next season to City? And you would imagine Chelsea obviously will be up there next season as well. How far away do you think United might be? I think there's progression. I mean, I think what we're saying about Arsenal is we can't see any progression. Well, probably what we're saying about Tottenham Hotspur is we can't see any progression at the moment. I think that generally speaking, um, since Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came in, obviously he's, he's a popular man with the fans, which kind of helps when the owners are as unpopular 
as they are. I think the recruitment's been pretty good so far. I think Bruno Fernandes, uh, Harry Maguire, uh, Aaron Wambasaka have improved what they had. Donny van der Beek was a little bit left field because they didn't seem to need uh, that kind of player. Now, they need to go again. That's the, the way we're talking about the 21st century. You've got to spend money. And in a perverse way, the unpopularity of the owners may just work for Oli because the Glazers have kind of got to try to deliver in some way here at the moment. I mean, it's very dangerous ground just to discuss and debate football club ownership um, on any kind of public forum at the moment. It seems to be far more sensitive than race or religion or um, sexual orientation at the moment. But I'm not sure who the popular owners are in English football. I'm not quite sure who the model owners are. Maybe Chelsea and Manchester City until the European Super League initiative. But the Glazers are a devil that Manchester United know, and they do spend money. And, um, and, and clearly, good recruitment is the key to Manchester United moving forward. Yep, they've spent money, Martin, haven't they? They've taken a heck of a lot of money out of the club yeah, as well. Say, but that's yeah. not... They've taken vast amounts of money out of the club, but I don't mm. think you could argue that that has prevented Manchester United from strengthening, has it? Well, the, the reason that, the, that these protests went away, the bottom line reason why these protests went away was that they won five titles and they got the three European finals uh, in that period while Ferguson was still there working with the Glazers. And, and, and you went from seeing an awful lot of green and gold to not very much green and gold at all. And it was sort of forgotten about. So um, that's why the... And I'm not saying that they ever... The fans ever warmed to the Glazers or anything, but they stopped um, protesting against them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they have, they, they have spent money. I mean, they've spent about £700 million, um, trying to be as... Uh, as good as Manchester City, but they haven't spent it in the uh, in the right way. Um, and so it's, it's obvious that the, the, the two clubs where it's it's really kicking off. It's it's not just about the Super League. It is also about the failure of the clubs. When you when, when you when you hear people from the Manchester United Supporters Trust, they talk about the decline of the football club as much as they talk about. Um, the the absolute outrage of of trying to form a close shop super league. You know the two the two go hand in hand. Obviously, the super league's the catalyst um, because that's that has I think brought home to everybody how little these owners actually care for or, or even give, pay lip service to the feelings of the average you know match going supporter. Um, but there is a reason why it is particularly strong at Arsenal Manchester, uh, Arsenal Manchester United. It's, and it's because those fans feel uh, that their club has failed in the last uh, number of years. Nigel, let's have a quick look ahead, as it were, to the Champions League final, Chelsea and Manchester City. Mm. Do you think it might come down to who defends better? Or are you going to tell me it always does, Mark? Well, uh, listen, <laughs> now being neutral and not really yeah. worried about who's going to win... <laughs> Yeah. I'm hoping that we're going to see plenty of goals yeah. and uh, and a, a, a fantastic advert for the for the Champions League because I feel that's now what we need. We've talk of uh, the Super League that's uh, by the fans' uh, ferocity has been pushed away very very quickly. Wouldn't it be great if if we could two two top English teams, you know, good Premier League teams, we could get 
just an open, exciting game of football rather than it being uh, tactical. But there's so much at stake. I mean, well, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just dreaming. Chelsea have conceded. Uh, is it five goals in the whole tournament so far? Uh, Man City, I think, have conceded four. It's two of the greatest defensive records ever to get to the final. They played an FA Cup semi-final a couple of weeks ago that was won one nil. <laughs> um, and I don't think I can remember a, a, a single thing that happened in it. So, so what uh, we're saying is nil nil extra time is, and penalties. If, <laughs> if you booked a restaurant for May the 29th, I wouldn't bother cancelling it. You know, if you if you've got in somewhere, you know, you know, keep your restaurant reservation. I yeah. mean, look, yeah, it's, it's great that two teams have got that, and on their day, it, they can be two wonderful attacking teams. Both of them can be, but. That's not the way they've got to the Champions League final. They've got no, to, but you can also have a def- you can also like have it tight. But Martin, you can you can also have uh, if you want to call it a defensive setup, but you can break with good control, oh, yeah, power and ability, and you can still press the opposition. And mm. you know, for me, I want to you know I want to see. I just don't want to see a tactical game where they're both standing off each other. You know, I want to see a bit of cut and thrust going forward as well. And I, I think both teams have the ability and, and the pace to to do that at times. Pep will save the final mark, don't worry. He'll play Edison up front or something, play <laughs> two goalkeepers. He'll come up with something. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll feel it's almost his responsibility mm-hmm. to show yeah. us a system of play that has never, ever been seen on the planet. And that but will save I, the final. Yeah. I know we're having a laugh, at Clyde, but in the past, we have accused him of overthinking it, haven't we, in the knockout stages of the Champions League? Yeah, and I don't think he's done that this time, you know. Um, He he has fashioned a a pretty sleek machine. But then, um, you know, Tuchel has done that. Um, I mean, you could argue that English clubs should be dominating European football. If you look at that, you know, that list of Forbes' most valuable clubs, I think of the top 20, we've got about uh, half of them. I mean, Barcelona and Real Madrid are number one and two on that list, and they've got debts bigger than the whole of the UK. Mm. But, um, you know, that's, that's where the ESL initiative came from really out of jealousy for the fact that somehow English football has found the kind of vaccination of the Premier League money to to, to keep it running uh, during the pandemic. So we should be up there. And I think actually the PSG Bayern quarterfinal draw helped because I think looking back with the benefit of hindsight, they were the two dangers to the English Premier League clubs Mm -hmm. and they met in the quarterfinal. But I mean, hats off to Thomas Tuchel. we're, We're talking about Arteta and indeed Mourinho, you know, 18 months into their times in charge of Arsenal and Spurs. And as Nigel said, we still didn't know what the, the best starting eleven was for either team. We knew with Thomas Tuchel within about 18 days. Um, yeah, he decided the system they were going to play, the players they was going to use. And he's only made slight adjustments to that since. And the record has been outstanding. Martin, why do you think Tuchel's managed to do it in 100 days in a way that Frank Lampard couldn't quite? Well... Um, Frank Lampard got them into the Champions League, um, having had his best player sold and with a transfer ban. Uh, Frank Lampard got them out of the Champions League group with the second best goal difference in the entire competition. So there's a big part of this that was actually started by Frank Lampard in the first place. I think what Tuchel has done, I don't think for one second that Frank Lampard doesn't know a player. 
Because that's what you'd have to argue. You'd have to argue he didn't actually see that Antonio Rudiger was their best defender. So I can only presume that Antonio Rudiger wasn't doing in training for Frank Lampard anything like he was, he's, he's now doing for Thomas Tuchel. Because you'd have to be crackers to ignore uh, Antonio Rudiger. And that would go with a lot of the players who've suddenly had um, rejuvenated careers under, under Thomas Tuchel. You do wonder what they were doing in training because I don't believe that Frank can't spot a player. He brought through Mason Mount as well. So, I, I, you know, I don't buy into this. Frank was a useless incompetent and, and Chelsea's season has been saved by Thomas Tuchel. The foundations of this, Chelsea's best player by a mile is Mason Mount. Mason Mount gets his chance at Chelsea because there's a transfer ban and because Frank encourages Mason Mount. So he plays a big part in this. What Tuchel has done, he's, he's refined everything. It's, it's absolutely sensational what he's done in terms of the way he's organised the defence, the way that he has, um, even his decisions on, on, on Werner, where he's kept faith with Werner because you can see the man is trying. And, and it's remarkably frustrating, really frustrating to watch a guy get in so many good positions and not be able to, to do the final thing that you want him to do. But he's trusting him to come good. I wonder, Nigel, if you recognise a bit of your old manager, George Graham and Thomas Tuchel. You know exactly what you're supposed to do when and where, aren't you, with both of them? Yeah, it seems very organised. Um and I agree with uh, Martin. It's easy just to dismiss Frank Lampard. Uh, I think he did a decent job, but I think they were looking for already again with Frank the next step and were maybe just a little bit worried that it wasn't going to happen. So they brought in Tuchel. And uh, I've got to say, he's, I mean, it just, it, just look, it just looks as though it's the modern George Graham. So, so well organised, great belief. Um, uh, and obviously he's, I mean, I, I don't know his man management style. And George, I always say that George was a bit standoffish. You, you know, I'm the manager, you are the players. You do exactly as, as I say. But he looks, you know, it looks as if he's got that drive and determination and, you know, yes, almost trusts his players to deliver what they've been practicing out on the out on the training pitch, and uh, uh, you have to say they are their consistency has gone up a couple of notches uh, in a very very short period of time. I, I think I'm slightly surprised about how good they have they have looked. I mean, his tutors come in and they've just I mean they've just been absolutely uh, in, incredible for me. So I think it makes it. An intriguing Champions League uh, uh, final on on with with the fact that just how well he, he's done. Well, the three Champions League finals that Chelsea have reached, they've sacked their manager mid-season every time. Mind <laughs> you, to say Chelsea have sacked a manager mid-season does not narrow down the season. I accept that. Um, incredible. Um, let, we're talking about a Chelsea hero these days, Mason Mount Martin. Let's talk about a hero of yesteryear, Edin Hazard. And the magnificent mm. indignation of Spanish TV when Hazard was caught laughing with some of his former Chelsea teammates. Mm, mm, um, mm. And I know you've written about Hazard and Pogba today in the paper about... Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, no, with Hazard, I always thought of Hazard. He was such a wonderful player, but when people compared him to Messi and Ronaldo, Messi and Ronaldo <laughs> never took a season off. Eden took the odd season off. He, he certainly took the season off in which Jose Mourinho got sacked the second time. Um, he certainly took that year off. And 
Um, there were other parts of seasons that had sort of flatlined a little bit. And then, he, 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 whereas you look at Messi and Ronaldo, there's a great stat uh, about uh, Ronaldo had scored as many as many goals as Eden Hazard had has in his entire Real Madrid career. Ronaldo done that within his first three games. Uh, Ronaldo actually has scored scored as many goals as Eden Hazard had for Real Madrid between the 15th and 55th minute against Racing Santander in October 2010 because he got four in 40 minutes. And that's what Hazard's got in two seasons. So, you know, there's there's the comparison. Now, I know he's been injured, but when a guy comes back, I think he was five kilos over um, when he reported back for training his first season and the, the famous comment, when I'm on holiday, I'm on holiday. And you think, I don't think Cristiano Ronaldo has ever had that sort of holiday in his entire life where he would come back five kilos overweight. I mean, you, you just wouldn't do it. You've made a, a, a 90 million, 100 million, I don't know, depending on who you read, Transfer to Real Madrid, and you haven't turned up at your, at your, your athletic best. I mean, I, I find that I find that staggering. And 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 now then there's injuries, and and it's just it's just grown and grown. So there is he's got no uh, he's got no hand there. If you see what I mean with anybody, you know they're they're fed up that 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 media and the Spanish media are like Sergio Ramos in terms of going after somebody. You know they they. Um, and he's got no hand with them anymore. And that, at the end of the match, and I've got sympathy for it. I really have got sympathy for players when you get this thing at the end of the game because it's a far more cosmopolitan game. They know these guys from international football. You, you see them, you know, like every three months or whatever, and you bump into each other at the end of a match. You have a chat. I completely get that. It drives the fans absolutely mad because they want it to sort of look like Tom and Jerry at the end of it with yeah, everyone, yeah. you know, at each other. Well, in the it at the end of the game, not before the game. That yeah, makes the but he was virtually doubled angry. up with laughter. That was that was what made it worse. It wasn't just <laughs> no, it wasn't exactly. just a, you know how you go in and has the misses or, or whatever. Yeah. He was in hysterics about yeah. something that someone had said, and they've just got knocked out of the Champions League, yeah. and. Uh, you know, Gareth Bale scored one of the greatest goals in the history of European football and it still couldn't get him back on side with the Spanish media so I don't see this ending yeah. more for Hazard either Clive let's finish by talking about your book you mentioned Istanbul there and you commentated on an incredible Champions League final when Liverpool won on penalties but would the Manchester United win in 99 just, just top that in terms of a, a commentary pinnacle for you well it is my job and it's it's the only job that I ever wanted to do and um Obviously, in, you know, once you get the opportunity to do your dream job, what you need then is material to work with. And 1999 was a very important year for me because the late, great Brian Moore retired after the, uh, the 1998 World Cup final. So it was my first season as a senior commentator for, for Network, first opportunity to be the guy who is broadcasting to audiences of, I mean, there were 20 million watched that 1999 final. So uh, not to put too fine a point on it, if I'd cocked up in those two or three minutes, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. You know, ITV would have found somebody else other than this a rookie who had suddenly been given this, this treble to, to, to narrate, you know, to oversee um, in, in front of these, the, the mass audiences that watch the Champions League on free-to-air terrestrial television. And that's another conversation, by the way, the exposure um, so it, it was a particularly big night for me and, and for my career. And um, 
I, w- I was brought up a Manchester United fan. I'm actually from Bury. My dad was a big United fan. Took me to Old Trafford when I was five years of age. And as a as a young gun, I write about it in the book. Um, I actually used to get on the football specials with all the kids from the Withenshaw Estate. It's, it's kind of one of the weird things about football. It brings you together with a common cause, with people you've got absolutely nothing else in common with. You know, I think that the, the, the greatest... Um, the, the greatest hindrance to diversity in our country is not uh, race or gender. It's 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 economic because you know with a with a good economic start in life, you get a good education in life, and that's what gives you the opportunity. So I was nothing like these kids that I was travelling with and singing these terrible songs with, uh, and dodging the bricks as they came through the train windows with, except for Manchester United. But who do I support today? I support my mates. And, the, and the, the great thing about all of our careers is the people that we've met. And that's what the book's about, really, about the people that I've had a chance to have special relationships with. And from the moment that I started to cover Nottingham Forest home and away at my first local radio station and actually travel on the team coach with these guys, be the same age as these guys, go to a nightclub with these guys on a Saturday night, I've supported my mates and and my affection for the people, the really, really close friends, and I've got to know their families and and so on and so forth, goes with them. And you were lucky, actually, really, weren't you, in that generation that you could travel on the same coach with the players? I mean, I think, you know, I think back to the very start of my career 30 years ago, and I look at it now in terms of access, even things like that. That was a very privileged time, Clive, wasn't it? Yeah, the the biggest change... The, the biggest change in, in my profession over the course of my career has been the distance that's grown between football and its media. And, and as a result of that, the distance has grown between football and its public. You know, I write in the book, you're never going to see your, your local team centre back in Sainsbury's anymore. That just doesn't happen. There is now a gap between the doers and the watchers. And it's actually our job. And I write quite a lot about the responsibilities of good communication which I think is so important beyond the, the, the sporting world. I, I actually write in the book that I think a political reporting, you know, events like Brexit and one or two recent elections would have been better covered by sports journalists than they are by political journalists, because I think we have more of a, an appetite, more of a feel, more of an affection, perhaps, for what we, we write about. But sometimes that affection... You know, it's easy to write. I, I, I know Martin would agree. It's easy to write criticism than it is to write praise. It's easy to attract attention by being critical than it is praise. And in order to, to really understand that the, we, we will never go down in the middle where Nigel went and won all those medals. We, we can only talk to the people who've been there and try to understand what it's like. And when you close the doors, when you set up media departments that close the doors on that relationship, when we can no longer get close to the people, and that's our job to get close to them and tell those who will never meet them what they're like, what it's like, how football matches are won and lost. Well, that gap has grown. And uh, and it's. I think the, the, the blame has been on both sides. You know, I think we as a media have, have been irresponsible at times in the way that we've treated human beings. And, you know, I've, I've alluded to that tabloid war between the sun and the mirror and the treatment of very decent human beings like Bobby Robson and, and Graham Taylor, which doesn't happen today um, um, mercifully. But the gap has, we've not come together. Gareth Southgate tried to do it um, at the last World Cup, not to try to seduce the media because he'd know better than that. He's too smart for that. But just to try to bring some some sanity back 
to, to, to what Martin said before, is actually a game. And of course, the big surprise when they had those darts matches between the media and the players is that the players threw their darts at the board. They didn't throw them at the journalists. <laughs> no. I mean, you know Gareth Southgate very well, came to your wedding. What, what do you think a minimum expectation is from England this summer? Well, uh, there's a chapter in the book called Gareth, and it's, it's, it's not so much about him or England's chances um, as so much the, um, the credibility that I think he's returned to, to the job. Um, I actually say, I, I, mean, I wrote quite a lot of this sort of back last year, and I actually say in the book that by the time you read it, he may well have gone, but I can be, I'll be pretty certain that he hasn't gone because he's been caught in some sting by some fake shake. I'd be pretty certain he hasn't gone because he's had an affair with a PA at the Football Association. I'll be pretty sure that he hasn't gone because he started talking about the afterlife in an interview. He is um, he is that safe pair of hands, which we kind of decry. And I also say in the book that weirdly, we have a way of almost holding, eventually we get so bored with people with their good qualities that we start to hold them against them as if actually, oh, we've had enough of that now. We need somebody who's mean and nasty and, and who might, you know, might sort of go off piste a little bit. I think, you know, the, the England football manager's job is about diplomacy, but it's about other things too. Obviously, you've got to hopefully be a good coach and make the most of this, this crop of, of young players, deal with the scrutiny that will definitely come our way if the doors are open come June and July. And there are not only fans inside Wembley, but fans inside uh, fan parks and uh, and sports bars all around the country and England do start to win a couple of games. We saw what happened in 2018. But again, because I know him personally, and I've written this in the book, when he came back from the World Cup finals last time, the first thing he said to me is, we're not the third or fourth best team in the world, don't worry. And, and he is a realist. He cares. He makes judgments about footballers and football things which need to be made. He knows his own mind. Um, he is, I, I say in the book, you know, there's never been a nice centre-back. Uh, however good he looks, you know, he has kicked people in the air in order to win football matches. So he'll do what's what's necessary. Let's just hope we can all give him, and those young players, as, you know, as Nigel said, it's not their decision to, they don't write their paychecks. Let's hope we can give them the breathing space to realise their potential this summer, because they certainly do have potential. There's no doubt about that. This is a very interesting crop of England footballers. Well, look at it, Martin. You've got two of them against each other in the in the champion... I almost said European Cup final then. Let's call it the European <laughs> Cup final. You've got Mount against Foden. I'm That's not going to use the words golden generation. That's bad. But it's terrific there. And, and, and Clive would But it was a golden was, generation. By the way, there's a lot of old nonsense talked about the golden generation. It was the golden generation. We had fantastic footballers. No, no, we should have won the European Championships in 2004. We should have won the European Championships in 2004. Yeah. We had the team to do it. It was yeah. a golden generation. It wasn't necessarily their fault that it didn't come off. My point being, I think... I had a manager with very little imagination. That after the pandemic we've had, that this is a chance for his England team to lift the nation. And he would, he would say that. And they've got the players to do that. That's what yeah, we, we've got. We've got, we've got tremendous players. We've got tremendous players. We should have a very good chance in this tournament. And we shouldn't. I think what has happened, there's been a, there's been a reversal where it's, it's gone from um, where everyone used to think we should win all the tournaments. I mean, everyone should be, oh, we should win the World Cup, we should win it. And 
there were so many disappointments that it's now very, very unfashionable to say we've got a good team. And everyone, you've got to go in there, uh, doom and gloom, apologising for even being there. Um, I, and I think it's nonsense. We've got a really good team. We've got a, we've got a very good team. I, I thought we, um, I agree with Gareth, I didn't think we were the fourth best team at the World Cup by any stretch of the imagination. But that will help. That will help some of the players who went through that experience. They got to the semi-final of a World Cup. Um, and you look at guys like Mount and you look at guys like Phil Foden, they're exceptional footballers. Any, they, would, they would be an exceptional footballer in the team in any country in the world. They would get in Spain's team. They would get in Germany's team. They would certainly get in and around it if they, even if they weren't started. They would be in and around any of those teams. You know, we should, we should feel good. We should feel good about this. And that's it from Game On. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. That's it from me, Mark Pugach. See you next week for more Game On.